0: to Yes Indeed Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations, and about the theory, process and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, your host today and always, and your friendly local indie enthusiast. This week we're talking to Jeffrey Hayes about Haunted Hill Academy, a one-on-one fate-based game about coming to terms with identity and authority as your character grows and develops within a boarding school in that mansion you always assumed was haunted. We also talk about drama therapy and running games for mixed age groups. I'm excited to bring you this interview, so please enjoy. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. So today we're talking to Jeffrey Hayes. Hi there, Jeffrey, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you. Jeffrey, would you like to take a minute to introduce yourself and let us know what you do in the indie tabletop role playing game scene?
1: Sure. My name is Jeffrey Hayes. My pronouns are he and they. I am a professional game master. I come from a background in drama therapy. Uh, when I was at school, I saw a lot of overlap between drama therapy theory and what I was already getting out of tabletop role playing games. And so I made a career out of offering games that are centered around transformational emotional growth through narrative. Ah, wow. So that's what I do now. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.
0: I really want to hit on some of that later. Yeah, that sounds absolutely <laughs> fantastic. It's definitely aligned to like my preferred style of play. And oh, <laughs> I'm very <laughs> excited by that.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I've been playing games for a long time and leading games for people and doing a lot of like bespoke game design and I've only recently started thinking like hey maybe people out in the world want to play games that I've made and maybe I should make them available so I'm coming up on my first like big game design that I have been playing for years and years with you know my players and especially with smaller children full. <laughs> and I have an opportunity to put it out in the world and give it to people so my game Haunted Hill Academy is kickstarting this October.
0: Fantastic well you know without any any more delay do you want to tell us a little bit sort of an elevator pitch if you like about what haunted hill academy is
1: absolutely so my idea behind it is basically what if that spooky old house that's in every neighborhood that big old haunted mansion that we all are aware of was a boarding school and what if we could tell coming-of-age stories mixed with the supernatural horror tropes of works like betrayal at the house on the hill and cabin in the woods yeah what if (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a game where you are trying to graduate and you have all this pressure to like decide who you're going to be and what you're going to do with your life but apparently no one else thinks it's super important that this place is filled with ghosts and goblins and who knows what else and they expect you to make (laughs) something with your life when there's stuff around every corner threatening your very existence yeah so yeah that's the kind of story i want to tell
0: and what sort of format does that come across as in sort of mechanically
1: primarily it's a fate based game Uh uh-huh it's also heavily informed by powered by the apocalypse games because those are the games that really helped me like hone my gming style yeah so even though mechanically it's mostly fate i've gone out of my way to use like principles and hard moves that you would have in PBTA games to kind of give the game master, or as we call it in this game, the guide, more of a handle on the situation.
0: Absolutely. I seem to remember reading that it was a one-on-one game. Is that still the case?
1: Yes, yes. There is a multiplayer variant because I want people who want to have that experience to have some guidance there. But when I was playtesting this game over the years, I found that having it one-on-one just really makes sense because it is so set up to tell very intimate personal stories Mm. and it allows for the guide and the player to really have their attention on one story together
0: i mean the reason i ask is that quite recently we had jeff stormer on the podcast in fact it will have been the previous mainline episode um just before yours obviously jeff's biggest hit i suppose if you like is party of one podcast which is one-on-one actual plays and this is exactly the sort of thing that that jeff was talking about you know very close-knit intimate stories that have the potential to be highly emotionally charged and potentially sort of cathartic and therapeutic and i think you know coming from your background as it were of drama therapy that sounds very much like something that is a a natural result of your training if you like
1: absolutely i think it is it's funny that you mentioned jeff stormer because i did play this game with him on his podcast as well
0: oh fantastic
1: yeah and we told a really great story i I really hope people can check it out and listen to it because we had a blast with it has
0: that come out yet
1: by the time this is out who knows it isn't out right now but (laughs) (laughs) at the time of this recording actually when i was working as a therapist like i did a lot of one-on-one games with people and you know creating games and narratives that help them work through their issues so it just made sense to do that recreationally as well
0: because who doesn't want to spend their evening off discussing their (laughs) innermost thoughts and relationships
1: i mean i know i do but (laughs) you know i
0: think there's a lot to be said for that and there's a lot of people who actually do want this kind of emotional connection you know there are people who also don't want to do this. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really down with that. And like, what sort of stories have you found that it tells? You don't necessarily have to go into the ins and outs of what your players have <laughs> you know, <laughs> gone through and discussed with you. But um, I, I am interested to know.
1: Yeah, I can speak broadly to themes that have come up. I think authority and resisting authority has come up a lot. One of the things that I'm most proud of in the design of the game is there's no HP, there's no consequences, there's no stress, there's nothing that takes you out of a fight. Okay. Your character can stay in conflict as long as they want to. Right. The main conflict issue to be aware of, and the thing that's on par with character death in this game, is expulsion. Right. And so you have an academic tracker from A through F. <laughs> if that ever hits F, you get notice of expulsion, you have 24 hours to attend your hearing and try and make your case, and if you don't do that, you get kicked out of the school. Um, And the game is only designed to tell stories that take place at the school. So that's, you know, once your character is gone, you can have a brief epilogue about where you think your character ends up and you can absolutely take that character into a different system and story. But, you know, it's meant to provide that kind of stake.
0: Straight up, that stresses me out, you know? Sort of oh, no, I don't want to I don't want to reproduce my school days. That sounds terrible. Like, you don't see that very often. Even though fate is designed to tell stories that are not just about violent conflict, mm-hmm. you still don't see that many hacks where people have taken out quite such a central core of the system, if you like. So, you know, <laughs> kudos to you for being brave. <laughs>
1: oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I just I really wanted to capture what I felt growing up in school of this feeling mm. of like the thing that was stressing me out the most was not like the dangers outside of the world it was this idea of like everyone is putting so much pressure on me to graduate and I don't I don't know man like I don't know every day feels so touch and go yeah and so that's where I wanted the stress to come in and it almost in a weird way gives people more permission to explore the weirder stuff in school because it's like the scarier stuff the horror because it's less real than you know keeping your grades up and you want to follow that.
0: So, what are the sort of horror aspects that we look at when you, when we play this game? When we talk to people who've made horror games, we often ask, how do you build up tension? How do you build up... I-, I guess the term is bleed, in a way. How do you how do you build up bleed from players to characters and from characters to players? Yes. Uh, in a way that, you know, you-, you understand that your character is afraid because actually you're quite scared on that behalf. <laughs> <off. laughs>
1: Absolutely. So, like all fake games, we start off with some character aspects. There are four character aspects. The big one that's relevant to this question is the plaguing question aspect. Right. This is the thing that wakes up your character at 3 a.m. in the morning in a cold sweat. It's the thing that shakes you to your core. The thing that maybe you're not always thinking about, but is in the back of your mind that feels just a little off. Yeah. And I say in the text of the game, like, this is your chance to telegraph to your guide the kind of horror you want to come across. Okay. And so some of the example questions we've had are things like, why does my reflection never look quite right? Why do I have memories that aren't my own? Yeah. What happens when I black out? What's that shadow I see out of the corner of my eye? Uh, am I actually the bad guy?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and do, do you find when you're playing with people that they use these sort of as a kind of crux to explore other issues? You're sort of thinking about issues of gender and about identity and sexuality and things like that. Is that the kind of issues that you're kind of exploring through subtext?
1: I didn't intend necessarily for this to be a queer narrative, but I think that. As a queer person, you know, thinking about my own experience, I couldn't avoid it. Mm, Yeah. And so a lot of people, especially trans people who have played the game, have talked about how much they got out of kind of exploring similar themes from their life at an aesthetic distance in this game. Yeah. And that made me feel good. (laughs) (laughs) that is that's
0: quite a compliment isn't it i mean i feel like what your game sounds like um if you will forgive the comparison is sort of a slightly less monstrous version of monster hearts which is no disrespect because uh monster hearts is a fantastic game and one that a lot of queer people find to be extremely rewarding to play Mm -hmm. and uh, i don't know whether you feel like you have written the, a similar sort of thing.
1: It's a comparison I've gotten a lot so far, and people have said it's kind of a cozier Monster Hearts, which I quite like. That's cute, yeah. <laughs> I think Monster Hearts is very good at telling short stories that ratchet up the tension really really high really really quick Yeah, and that's really great but if you're looking for something that is a little longer lived and gives you a little more breathing room to pull back I think that the system offers that.
0: I think what Monster Hearts does like really well is tell stories about very very chaotic teen lives and uh-huh. that is its is it mode you know it is designed to tell that sort of a kind of a really horrendous version of Sweet Valley High that kind of very high tension story <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But what you're talking about is because it's one-on-one, you don't have this conflict with other player characters. You might have conflict with non-player characters. You might have conflict with teachers and other pupils. And you're also kind of exploring this sort of horror narrative as well in the background.
1: It does sound really cool. Thank you. Yeah. And then to speak back to the question of like, what kind of horror narratives does this tell? One thing in particular that I'm, you know, happy with with this setting is the forbidden wing of this school. This is a big old school that was once a haunted mansion owned by a wealthy widow who decided that it would be turned into a boarding school, but nothing inside could be changed. So all the classrooms take place in non-traditional classrooms so you may have class in a wine cellar in a kitchen in a sunroom yeah etc and it has to have its its purpose in place and nothing could be you know reconstructed so there's a whole wing of the school the north wing that students aren't allowed into and there's so many rumors about why and what kind of rooms are in there yeah people say like oh the rooms shift or you know this is where the actual school is that has magic stuff happening and so there's this constant present thing there because the Forbidden Wing isn't like sealed off. It's an open archway with two metal stanchions and a velvet rope in between and a little sign hanging down that says Forbidden Wing, please do not enter. It's all but inviting you in to go and get your life messier. I'd have gone in there. You
0: gotta go in there, man. You gotta. That's just like having a button that says, do not press this button.
1: Exactly. Don't throw me into the prior you patch. You can't expect teenagers not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and that gets back to that idea of, you know, questioning authority and doing the things that you think are right. And so one of the key mechanics is when you enter the Forbidden Wing and when you, you know, reach for a doorknob for the first time, the guide asks the player what's on their mind, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and that informs what's behind the door that they walk into right right the forbidden wing really is built to give the player the kind of horror that they want to experience
0: it feeds back to that plaguing question aspect which you were talking about before
1: exactly yes
0: okay that's really cool thank you i like that and then rather so rather in the book than you setting out what this is you're leaving it up to the gm too fill in the colour of the sketch that you've painted. That's that's really nice. It's a good little fate and powered by the apocalypse <laughs> hack there that means that you have to do a lot less work as a guide, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, I always appreciate. <laughs> Yeah. We've talked a little bit about, like, the changes that you've made. Are there any other mechanical changes that you've implemented as well?
1: So anyone playing Fate Core will notice that the skill system is completely different. I've thrown out skills. I've replaced them with identities. Oh, cool. And these are your very, like, John Hughesian kind of take on uh, high school stereotypes. You've got cadet, nerd, outsider, rebel, legacy, jock. That's really cool.
0: In a given situation, you can call upon one of those mm-hmm. in the way that I guess fate accelerated has yeah
1: just like approaches and fate accelerated or uh you know it's almost more like uh professions from the fate system toolkit of you know it's who you mm. are rather than what you do that defines how you roll
0: absolutely that's really cool yeah i'm very down with the changes that people make to the fate skill system which was kind of cool and edgy in the 2000s and now feels a little bit passe <laughs> <laughs> so like replacing it with some of the stuff from the fate system toolkit which is an excellent toolkit actually
1: oh yeah I love it. One thing with identities that I want to show off is the fact that unlike in other fake games, they're not static, much like in say masks, they can move up and down during play and they frequently do.
0: Yeah, because in that you have these kind of hero archetypes, don't you? And they do shift a lot during play.
1: Labels, they call them. And so there's a lot of that of shifting uh, up and down with these, these archetypes. And one thing that's unique to this system is uh, unlocking new identities.
0: Okay, that's cool.
1: So during play, you can unlock identities. So if you go into, you know, the Forbidden Wing and get bitten by a vampire, let's say, then you unlock the vampire identity. And that's something you can lean into. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Does that happen at like the Fate Milestones, as it were? Yeah. So like at Milestones, player and guide check in and, you know, offer ideas of what they want to do but it also can just happen organically in play like if that bite happens right then then we don't have to wait around it's like obviously a vampire got unlocked just now so add it to your list of identities
0: and then because everyone kind of has this idea of what a vampire is then that means i guess that you can use the vampire identity to overcome certain challenges
1: exactly and then once you bring a identity up to its maximum plus 4 that is when you start to have kind of an aura around you of sorts like it becomes very obvious to others that there's something going on with you so if you have vampire at plus 4 You can't go out in the sun. People can tell that there's something different about you. Depending on the mythology that you and your guide come up with, maybe your eyes go black. Maybe you don't go to places unless you're invited. Maybe you're scared of garlic. Who knows? Sure. What happens if you have Jock at plus four? You tell me. I think it's pretty straightforward.
0: (laughs) you're the top dog right okay (laughs)
1: exactly yeah that's
0: cool I like it a lot I I really like the sound of that actually (laughs) Um, I'm very I'm very intrigued by the way that that could all pan out in practice so
1: stunts in this game no one starts with stunts so usually in fake games we have special abilities called stunts that offer bonuses in particular situations Mm -hmm. no one starts with them but they can also be unlocked in play usually it's you know a moment when a character does something that seems like it should be outside of their ability and player. and guide agreed that's a stunt that should be unlocked it can also happen if you like find a spell book or something yeah or like an ancient artifact and there's a stunt attached to that have you introduced anything from the
0: horror toolkit as well or has that kind of passed you by
1: no I I have not I haven't had a chance to look at it yet because I designed this game before the horror toolkit came out
0: I've not looked at it either I was just oh no,
1: yeah I definitely want to give it a read soon it interests me in the kind of way that
0: I, because a lot of people and this is not meant in any disrespect have like classically said oh fate isn't any good for horror. Now to that point I would say, well what about Faeta Cthulhu? What about I Hunt? And now I can say, well what about Haunted Hill Academy? Because it sounds like what you've done here is just made it a perfect example of how that doesn't apply.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I want to talk really quickly about the fact that horror means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Yeah. I think that fate lends itself so well to gothic horror. Okay. I offer so many compels based on people's fear of like opening a door or confronting something that they think might be true, but they don't know if they can handle it. And that to me is like what gothic horror is all about is like confronting the realities that you don't want to see, especially when it ties into like family and like with a game that's all about, you know, the legacy of an academy, obviously family stuff and who came before you, you know, plays a major role in a lot of what happens.
0: Yeah, I think I agree with that. I was just thinking because of the other kind of genre or mood that. Fate lends itself quite well to its sort of pulpy action. Mm -hmm. And sort of the logical horror conclusion to that is either the sort of Indiana Jones style Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, this is kind of ridiculous level of not really horror. (laughs) Or potentially the kind of teen slasher movie level of horror, you Mm -hmm. know, like I Know What You Did Last Summer or Scream. Oh, totally, yeah. That's not really the kind of horror that you're trying to emulate here. I think you're, yeah, like gothic horror identity entity horror, that sort of thing, which is certainly a lot creepier and (laughs) definitely a lot more interesting.
1: What I love about it is I've been able to tell a whole range of horror stories with this, you know? Yeah. Gothic horror is kind of what I lean toward personally, but we've definitely had things that felt more slashery come up. We had a game that felt very Saw, which I wasn't expecting, but it worked really well. Oh, I do not like. (laughs) I am not a torture porn kind of person myself either, but, you know, we were able to do it in a way that felt very safe for both of us and felt really intriguing yeah like there is such a psychological element at least to the first movie in the saw series of what's happening yes so we were really able to get into that and the player was able to i gave complete power to the player to be like cool describe to me how grotesque this is because i can't do it great that was disgusting good job yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> i mean this i guess is is gonna bring me to the question kind of the question of the hour. Hour really, but let, particularly for horror games, I think it's really important that you have good safety tools built yeah. into the system. Uh,
1: what kind of tools are
0: you recommending?
1: I'm recommending Lines and Veils. Always good. And I'm recommending an X card as well. Yeah. And I just remind people that it's not a one time discussion. I think that it's easy to forget that sometimes, that we do safety talk at the beginning. And so I've written in like whenever something horrific is happening like be checking in with each other as much as possible Mm. and for you know both player and guide to feel comfortable voicing and also asking each other like does this feel okay? Is this the kind of story we want to tell?
0: I've probably told this story on Yes Indeed before, but I have this, it's not an issue. It's exactly what you talked about, um, which is that, you know, you identify lines and veils at the start of a game, and then you don't necessarily check back in with them later. And some games are now kind of introducing it. you should do this at the end of every session, just check that your lines and veils still apply. And that's nice. That's a good thing to do. So I think people have to remember is that, This isn't just an exercise that you do for fun. This is an exercise you do to make sure that everybody can have fun.
1: Yeah, that's well put. I really
0: want people to remember that safety tools, it's not just a tick box exercise. Like you do have this obligation to other players, including from the player to the GM, to make sure that everybody is comfortable and safe at the table, and I think people forget that. Yeah, I agree. I was wondering as well, like like with Bluebeard's Bride, the, the castle or the mansion itself feels very much like a character in the game. Is that sort mm-hmm. of the thing that you try and impose through the play of Haunted Hill Academy?
1: Absolutely. I try to leave it open to the Gaiden player to come up with how they want to approach that, and you know, it's it's very open-ended in the way the game is written, but when I am guide for this game, that's absolutely something that I have an agenda that I pushed for because I love the idea of like the spirit of a building. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's so cool. I'm
1: really into that. One influence for this was absolutely like Stephen King's Rose Red. Oh, okay. And the idea of a building full of spirits that consumes people and those spirits continue to help build the house and continue to bring in more spirits.
0: The spirit of a place, you know, kind of puts it fairly well, but it reminds me of like paranormal activity and the insidious uh-huh. way you kind of had this this environmental horror you know there's there's this kind of feeling that something awful is happening because of the place that you are in uh, the Blair Witch Project does it quite well as well what I really like about what you've described so far is that you have this sort of open invitation for the players to interact with the building by entering the Forbidden Wing which you know mm-hmm. actually putting a sign on a door saying the Forbidden Wing <laughs> is a stroke of genius rather than calling it something fancy <laughs> well, so you. I really like that and you know it, it would be cool to see how that actually pans out in play.
1: and then circling back Way back a while ago to the kinds of stories that come up in play, I really want to touch on the fact that family is a huge theme that comes up a lot in this game, not just from the gothic kind of standpoint that we talked about, but also from this idea of chosen family. Yeah, One of the most beautiful scenes that I've seen in play so far came from a character entering the Forbidden Wing and having to make this choice of saying like... They were told that they could, you know, stay in the Forbidden Wing forever, but they would give up what was on the other side. Yeah. You know, there was this very poignant moment where they said they felt like there wasn't anything to give up on the other side, mm. that they felt like they had finally found where, where they were supposed to be. Yeah. And it was just, it was a really beautiful moment there of this thing that I had thought was going to be a horrific proposal to this character, and it was actually, like, their happy ending that they'd always been looking for. That's a sweet and tender moment.
0: That's really, that's really interesting. Kind of looping back to what we were talking about with queer narratives, Mm -hmm. I found when discussing this with other designers on the show, I'm thinking of Luke of Wildwoods Games. There's often this idea of found family being a really, really important aspect of the arc of a queer narrative that's really interesting that then you found that this comes out during the course of this game which you said you hadn't necessarily written specifically as a kind of queer role-playing game but yeah it kind of looks that way when you play it
1: <laughs> I think this is a game that really takes on the voices of people playing it and becomes very personal and not just mm. for the player but for the there's this beautiful thing that happens where the guide and player really get to intimately show each other where they're at in terms of of telling a very personal story about growing up and as a queer person I, I think I'm just connecting to other players yeah. on that queer level so I'm really excited for this to go public and get in the hands of the straights so that I can see what kind of stories they tell with it <laughs> <laughs> excuse me
0: the format one-on-one play um, and small group play as well lends itself so well to kind of building up an intense emotional exchange between guide and player or between two players for instance and it's something that I think is coming out more and more now because people are finding themselves <laughs> in, in situations where small group play is kind of more accessible to them and it's just so good and it's so neat uh, so yeah let's let's get it out there into the hands <laughs> of the streets <laughs> on that note I believe your game is going to be going through Kickstarter next month. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, the game is kickstarting starting starting on October 11th. It wasn't intentional for it to be national coming out day, but there we are. (laughs) And it will end on midnight on Halloween.
0: Oh, that's cute. What a nice <laughs> what a nice thing to do. Of course it'll end on midnight at Halloween, the witching hour.
1: It has to, yes. Cool. <laughs> and
0: it sounds like most of the game's already written, so what is it that you are funding through the Kickstarter?
1: I'm funding art and layout, things that I don't know how to do. So I found some really phenomenal artists uh, who do really cool stuff and I want to give them the money that they are worth to make it. Yeah. I think that this is a game that stands on its own, but I think looking at it and seeing the art and evoking those feelings is going to be uh, a very worthwhile experience for people.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any other hopes and dreams for your campaign as well? Do you have you got extra goals in mind before you get started, or is it going to be plain and simple?
1: I have some stretch goals in my back pocket. I have no idea how successful or unsuccessful this will be. I feel that it's really hard to reach the the larger RPG community. Sometimes and I feel like I've just been kind of like in my my cozy little hole playing games with people that I know. But if I am able to, uh, you know, the initial goal is just going to be a PDF copy, I would love to if it gets enough traction, uh, look at some hard copies to, to send out to people. Yeah. And then there are some folks in the community who have expressed interest in writing additional content, Uh just beefing up the game a little bit with additional ideas for rooms in the Forbidden Wing, for side characters that can be interacted with. And I think they'll add a lot of uh interesting stuff. Oh, cool. That would be really neat. Yeah, I'm keeping myself careful because I've heard horror stories, not fun, you know, transformative horror stories, just horror stories about... <laughs> you know, going too hard on a Kickstarter. So with the stretch goals, so I just want to, I want to keep it reasonable, but you know, add a little extra oomph if we can. Well, I
0: encourage everyone to go out and back that because it does sound really cool. And hopefully the party of one episode will come out soon as well. And that sounds, that sounds like it'll be a blast because I know Jeff does really awesome stuff with emotionally charged games. So
1: absolutely (laughs) looking
0: forward to hearing that. Fantastic. Good luck with your Kickstarter campaign. I'm, I'm really excited to see how that turns out. And again, that's uh, October 11th through to the witching hour of Halloween. That gives you plenty of time from the this episode release to go out and back it. Yay. so jeffrey right back at the start what we talked about or what you introduced yourself as was <laughs> somebody who trained in drama therapy do you want to explain a little bit about what that is and how you then made the leap from that into making ttrpgs that have a sort of therapeutic <laughs> bent to them
1: i can certainly try so drama therapy is probably exactly what it sounds like just like there's art therapy and music therapy Drama therapy is anywhere where theatrical techniques and therapeutic techniques intersect. Yeah. So that can be as simple as a therapist asking a client to talk to an empty chair and imbue it with the character of like their mother or father or whoever. And it can go all the way to a different extreme of therapeutic performance or playback theater. So a troupe of actors coming together to create shows entire theatrical experiences with therapeutic intent for both them and the audience.
0: Yeah, it sounds really good. You probably see aspects of this in dramatic representations of therapy. And actually, it sounds very much up my street.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And so, one of the things that I saw a lot of is, especially in Renee Amuna's five phase model of drama therapy, of like reaching into yourself, finding a kind of a fragment of yourself, a character, and letting that character experience transformation in some way, and then integrating that transformation that that, you know, facet of yourself experienced into your whole being. And that's kind of the goal of that. And I was thinking about it, and I was like, that is almost exactly what happens when I play games. That is like
0: codifying how to do emotional role playing game design, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's this great quote that I read about uh, Monster Hearts, actually, where a player was saying, uh, I think that when you create a character, you cut out and galvanize a part of yourself to display and transform.
0: Absolutely. I don't know if everybody does this when they play role-playing game characters. But I know I definitely do. And until relatively recently, I didn't even realize that this is what I was doing.
1: (laughs) It sneaks up on you. It really does. And like, I think even people who think that they're playing a strictly strategic battle-centric game can be surprised by the ways that their character behaving in game informs kind of how they view themselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's
1: really interesting. So then making the leap
0: to role-playing games from drama therapy doesn't sound like it would actually be too big.
1: <laughs> no, it was it was kind of funny actually because I did write my entrance essay into grad school on, you know, tabletop role-playing games and how that led me to drama therapy. And then when I got there, I was like, wait, I'm already doing it. Like, this is the skill set, but I just can take it. I don't have to transition into what I see as quote-unquote traditional drama therapy. I can just take the skill set and continue to play games with therapeutic content So it was a surprisingly natural transition.
0: Yeah. And then you were talking about making bespoke games- was, it, was that part of um, the therapeutic practice?
1: Or? It was, yeah. So it is also something that I offer now. So I, I decided not to get licensed as a therapist. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, play games with people, but for a while, in pursuit of my degree, I had to offer uh, one-on-one individual therapy, and so with people, I let them know, like, hey, I consider myself a games therapist, you're gonna tell me a little bit about what you want to work on, and we'll create a game together to kind of work through that issue, and if that's something that's not interesting to you, that's totally fine, we'll get you reassigned. No one ever wanted to get reassigned, people were like, this is weird, but I'm into it, and it was great.
0: That sounds really cool.
1: It was really fun, and it was a wonderful challenge as a game designer because i had this thought in my head that games had to have like quantifiable mechanics mm. and i remember saying that to one particular client uh speaking very broadly in a way that doesn't you know violate confidentiality they just they wanted to bring up their character's relationship with love as being uh, a primary mechanic of the game and so at the time i was like great so we'll uh, how do, how do we quantify love and make that a mechanic that you can roll with? Uh-huh. And this person immediately checks out and is like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, you don't. Yeah. That's the whole thing. And so that led me, like from there, I went on to find great ways to have different mechanics and being inspired by games. I know we've already talked about Monster Hearts, but to talk up Avery Alder a little bit more, Ribbon Drive has a wonderful playlist-centric mechanic. yeah
0: absolutely love me some ribbon drive
1: oh it's fantastic and so that was a thought process for me of like well what if other arts were you know part of mechanics what if we let people be inspired by uh images that they bring in or text that they bring in
0: wow this is incredible (laughs) not only are you playing through games to help people explore issues but you are also building the games up with them you are collaborating with them to build the games that's incredible what a set of skills to develop as part of a degree (laughs) (laughs) i am i'm in awe of that that sounds amazing
1: oh Um, thank you
0: it reminds me a little, again, going back to what Luke of Wildwoods games was saying, that they were developing games for children. They were playing games with children that mm, had the mm-hmm. same kind of aim at developing empathy and sympathy and those kind of skill sets that are difficult for people to develop otherwise. Pretty sure you mentioned something to do with children do you want to go into that
1: sure after school i worked for a great company called the game academy they're san francisco based yeah that was working primarily with children so ages eight and up Uh, i worked for the full spectrum between the ages of eight and 18 uh sometimes in the same group which is absolutely delightful i have to say it seems like a lot and it is and it's also great
0: um, I have a six-year-old at home. I can't imagine, like, someone ten years their senior being interested in interacting with them. They have older cousins, and the cousins are not interested <laughs> in these young <laughs> children. So I'd just be interested to know how that would work at a situation where you are throwing them together in a kind of non-familial sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought it was you know, weird at first too, the first few times I got into it, but then I remembered growing up in theater and being like an 8, 910 year old alongside high school seniors and like looking up to them so much and them being so excited because kids in like that 6 to 10 range don't have as much of a filter and will like bombard you with the weirdest, most creative stuff possible.
0: Yes, absolutely. I agree with that wholeheartedly.
1: There's like this little found family thing again that Happens in those groups of like, okay, we have next to nothing in common other than we all want to be here to do this thing. And we're all finding that we care about each other, and that's enough. It's great for the older kids uh, and the teens and young adults to have a chance to, like, practice being a mentor to the younger folks at the same time as being a peer. Yeah, That's such an important skill set to develop for adulthood, because as we grow up and become adults, there's this weird thing that happens where all of this strange ageism that we grew up with kind of goes out the window and we're all peers, but we all need help training each other at the same time. Yeah, I think that's a really valuable skill set to develop as early as possible. So it's been helpful for those kids. And it was really cool to see in action. Wow. Well, (laughs)
0: look, I'm in awe of your career.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. I wish I could say that it was taking off completely, but it's a hard road.
0: (laughs) It is. But, you know, you followed what you wanted to do. And I have a lot of respect for that. And to then start developing TTRPGs in a professional capacity as well. Well, that's fantastic. I'm very impressed. <laughs>
1: oh, thank I you. More. That's very sweet.
0: So, Jeffrey, would you like to take a minute to let us know where we can find you on the internet?
1: Oh, of course. Yes. So you can find me on Twitter at Jeffrey Jeff Rar. Rar, spelled R-A-W-R, but that is mostly a place where I just post the pictures of my flowers that I buy myself every week because I'm worth it. You can also follow me at Haunted Hill Acad for updates about the game. Mm-hmm. And I have just recently created a Twitter for my gaming business, Critical Growth games so that's at crit growth games and you can find it online www.criticalgrowthgames.com yeah those are those are the places to find me fantastic well (laughs) uh, i
0: do encourage everyone to go and check out those social media handles and the website itself and all that remains for me to say is thank you very much for coming on yes indeed pod and fantastically good luck with your kickstarter thank you thanks for listening and thanks again to jeffrey for the interview As always, you can find all of the links in the episode description. In two weeks, we're talking to Jariel, an Italian game designer about her current projects, Cerulean Springs, a cyber fantasy system, and a rules-light system exploring melancholy. Tune in in two weeks to find out more. This week, an advert for you from a former guest and friend of the show. Logan, an autobiographical tabletop game, is a brand new game by queer Aussie indie game designer Logan Timmins. In it, you play through events Logan has lived through and come out with a version of his life in your hands. Logan is deeply personal and vulnerable. Logan is a reflection on life and its highs and lows, its ebbs and flows. Logan is an invitation to look at your own life and reflect on all you have been through. Logan is a reminder to commend yourself for still being here. Logan is a work of queer joy, trans pride, resilience, growth, and love. Logan is a love letter that the author invites you to write to yourself. If that sounds interesting to you, Logan is itch funding right now. You can find this game at breathingstories.itch.io logan where funds are being raised to hire layout artist jam plus unlockable stretch goals. Logan is very proud of this game and it is dear to his heart, and he would love your support in whatever way you can show it. At the time of writing, Logan has made 64% of its funding target with over three weeks left to run, so there's plenty of time to get in on this and make it happen. I've already thanked all of my wonderful Patreon backers this month, but I'd like to let you know that I've made a few changes to my Patreon tiers. To be more inclusive to our friends in countries where the exchange rate makes the dollar expensive, I've lowered the price of two of my tiers, so you can get on board and hang out with me and my past guests on our Discord server, as well as getting regular shoutouts like my current backers currently do. Most of the money will go directly to creators rather than to me, so you'll be investing directly in the indie scene, which will make it a healthy and inclusive place for years to come. And if you can't commit regularly, you can always help by rating and reviewing the show wherever you find your podcasts. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at YesIndeedPod, that's Y-E-S-I-N-D-I-E-D-P-O-D. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. The intro music is by my amazingly talented friend, Gemma Hooper. And the outro music and interstitials are from BitQuest by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com and Filmmusic.io. Thank you, Gemma and Kevin. Until next time, remember, does Indy need you? Yes, indeed.